Psalm 122. It's a song of a sense. We've been in a series recently looking through these 15 psalms from Psalm 120 to 134. Psalm 122, a song of a sense of David, and David writes, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Father, this is your word. We thank you for it. We thank you for the summons to come. Maybe even the encouragement from others that have said, let's go, and here we are. We thank you for your people. We thank you, Lord, for your presence among your people and the praise that you invite us to. Help us today, Lord, to marvel at what you've done, at who you are, at what you've called us to be, at what you have called us to do. We thank you for your word. We pray for your help because of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen. You could be seated. Well, next Sunday will be the last Sunday at Desert Springs Church for those members who are going out with our next church plant, Christ Church, which will eventually meet downtown. It's next Sunday that we'll send them off. We'll pray for them. We'll thank them. I'm sure we'll weep together. It'll be bittersweet. This Sunday, we actually come to a psalm that would be perfect for a church plant send-off Sunday. Psalm 122 is about seeking God's presence together and celebrating his people and praying for unity. That's perfect for a church plant send-off Sunday. We're a psalm off. Psalm 134 isn't quite as fitting. It's mostly about enemies. So what to do? Well, what we'll do is extend our time in Psalm 122 over two weeks, this week and next. And so we'll still be in this great church-related psalm next week uh, for our church plant send-off Sunday. But the reason for spreading this out is not just to have a more fitting sermon text for that send-off Sunday. It's that, but it's also coupled with the fact that Psalm 122 is one of the richest multi-layered psalms of the 150, especially for only nine verses. It is enormously theological. It has almost countless connections to other parts of the Bible. It's often prone to misunderstanding and misapplication by Christians today, and yet it's enormously important and of great encouragement to Christians today. 
So this week we'll cover the historical background and the theological connections for Psalm 122. And then next week we'll be in a much better position to more simply just enjoy it and exalt in it and live in light of it. Let me try to illustrate our plans for Psalm 122. Before moving to Albuquerque uh, 13 years ago now, we, we lived in Golden, Colorado. And Golden, Colorado is the last Denver metro city to the west until you get to the foothills and then the foothills which lead to the Rocky Mountains. So from our house in Golden, Colorado, you could see the foothills, just foothills. You'd know that there's Rocky Mountains on the other side of those foothills, but all you saw is foothills. The foothills are nice. The foothills get as high in elevation as maybe 2,000 feet above the, the, the city of Golden. They're rolling and they're, they're sometimes green. They're, they're nice. But there's a slight discontentment knowing that the Rocky Mountains are on the other side of those foothills and you can't see them. If you back up east, let's say all the way to Aurora, on the other side of downtown Denver, then all of a sudden the Rocky Mountains emerge over those foothills, so much so that you'd say, what foothills? You don't even notice them. They're, they're a footnote on that landscape. All you see is snow-capped mountains off there in the distance. They're cool to see from that vantage point, but they are off in the distance. Yet if from Golden, Colorado, you drove west into the foothills and through the foothills, then before too long, you come up over this one peak. And it's like the architects of this certain bridge actually had in mind that this would frame the first appearance of the Rocky Mountains as you head west out of Denver. You come over this peak and then boom, there they are, Rocky Mountain High. Although John Denver probably meant different kind of high than just elevation. But there they are. They're huge. They're, they're layers and layers of our, of our Sandia peaks. They're, in some cases, 4,000 feet higher than our Sandia peak. And they are countless in number. Well, imagine that the Jerusalem mentioned in Psalm 122 is like golden Colorado with its foothills. It's not bad living there. In fact, it's lovely. It's joyous. Psalm 122, the Jerusalem in it is worth celebrating. But what a shame it would be to never leave Golden, Colorado and never see what's on the other side of foothills. So today, though we're in Psalm 122, we won't stay in Psalm 122. We'll first back up to gain some perspective and to see what's on the other side of those foothills, to see where they lead and to see where, where you, how you get to the foothills. Then we'll drive right into the Rocky Mountains of God's plan and we will take in some of its highest crests and ridges. We'll work ahead of Psalm 122 in our Bibles. That's this morning. The next Sunday we're going to simply camp out on one of those mountain ridges of the Rocky Mountains of God's plan. That's the plan. So we've read Psalm 122 already. We've glanced at its terrain, we could say. Now let's back up 
to gain a better perspective on the road that leads to Psalm 122 and through Psalm 122. Let's consider Jerusalem through several different sets of eyes this morning. The first, Jerusalem through the eyes of David, through the eyes of King David. We have to see it through the eyes of David because that's in the title, the the heading. Did you notice that it says of David? So David wrote this. What's the significance of that? Well, turn back with me to 2 Samuel 5. Keep your finger in Psalm 122. We'll actually do some flipping from 2 Samuel 5 back to Psalm 122. I won't quote much of what we see in 2 Samuel, but you might want to look down. It wasn't long ago that we were in this book of 2 Samuel. You might want to refresh your memory at stuff we have seen there. Like in 2 Samuel 5, when David and his army defeated the Jebusites who had occupied Jerusalem for hundreds and hundreds of years. Of course, they didn't call it Jerusalem. They just called it Jebus. And then David defeated the Jebusites and took the land. That defeat was momentous, not just because no one had ever done that before, but because of what would come of it. David would rename that city Jerusalem, the city of peace. Jerusalem, we might say. He set up headquarters there. You see, in verse 9, he built out the city. Or in verse 11, a palace was built for him there. Jerusalem was going to be the headquarters, not just politically, but also religiously. It would be the place for God's dwelling, the place for his worship. And that's exactly where 2 Samuel 6 goes, where David brings the Ark of the Covenant out from storage and up to Jerusalem. This is where David famously celebrated and danced before the procession leading the ark to Jerusalem. And rightly so, David danced before the Lord. The ark was the symbol of God's presence among his people. It symbolized his word, his covenant, his provision, and his mediated presence among his people. I say mediated because this is where the sacrifice was done and where the blood was poured out. And of course, it all represented God's very throne. So to move the ark to Jerusalem was essentially to set up religious shop there. And it was a unifying move to make Jerusalem the headquarters like this. None of the tribes had claimed that land as their own before. David didn't make Bethlehem the headquarters, and then Judah, sort of the prize tribe, but here was the city carved out in the middle where no tribe had lived before because of these Jebusites, but now they're removed, and now the city's not just none of the tribes, it's all of the tribes. Remember Psalm 122 said, to which the tribes go up, the tribes Of the Lord. So you can imagine the excitement and the anticipation as David led this parade with the ark in tow. They headed out there in 2 Samuel 6. You have the feeling someone might have said, I was glad when they said to me, Let us go. Not to the house of the Lord yet. It hadn't been built, but that's where it's going. That's where it's going. And that's what. 
leads us to 2 Samuel 7, where David tells God of his interest to build God a house as opposed to a temporary dwelling, the tabernacle or the tent where the Ark of the Covenant sat at that moment. God responds to David's nice request, no thanks, your son will do that, your son will build me a permanent place, a temple, but I will build you a house. Of course, David meant he'd build a physical house for God, and God responded by saying, I'll build you a house as in a lineage or a dynasty and an eternal one at that. Chapter 7, verse 16, God said, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, all of this is significant background to Psalm 122. In 2 Samuel, we find the origin of Jerusalem as the royal city, as the future house of the Lord. In 2 Samuel, we find Jerusalem as the place to which the tribes will go up and worship and give praise to God in his presence. But it's also the place of those grand promises that God gave to David and his offspring. And we see that in Psalm 122, verse 5. There, thrones for judgment were set. The thrones for the house of David. Why thrones, plural, when there's only one king? Well, because there's only one king at a time. And David wouldn't be an eternal king. He'd die. He'd pass it on to Solomon, and then Solomon to his son, and on and on it goes. There'd be thrones until the eternal son of God and the true and final son of David, Jesus came. And he fulfilled all these promises that were far too grand for King David. Remember that in 2 Samuel 7, when David received these grand promises, he responded in praise to God, thanking God that God had just given him the, the charter for mankind. That's too big for David, let alone his less worthy offspring. Again, until you get to Jesus, who is perfect and righteous and the eternal Son of God, who will reign forever and ever. Well, that's where this is going, Jesus. And this is why the New Testament makes so much about Jesus' lineage, being of David, and David and Jesus being a king and the true king. So can you see it? We've backed up. The foothills of Psalm 122 are barely in view. We're sort of looking over them from the place we stand. We can begin to see where the road starts there in 2 Samuel 5, 6, and 7. And we can also see where it leads and sort of where it ends. We can see that one particular ridge of the great Rocky Mountain stand out. We can call it Jesus. And we'll get there eventually this morning. But let's note this, that somewhere between David and Jesus, there's another perspective for us to consider. So secondly, we consider Jerusalem through the eyes of pilgrims. Through the eyes of pilgrims. Turn back to Psalm 122 if you're not there already. It's in a psalm, a psalm of ascent or ascents. 
Written by David, yes, but later on packaged together with 14 other psalms, as we've been learning, to be used together by Jewish pilgrims when they made one of those three yearly treks to Jerusalem for feast and sacrifice. So verse 4 of Psalm 122, the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. It was decreed in Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. Three times a year, your men will present themselves before me. No matter where you live on the outskirts of this, this area, you will come in. You will ascend up. In fact, our psalm this morning has go up three times in it. In the title, ascents. In verse 1, let us literally go up. I was glad when they said, let us go up. And then verse 4, to which the tribes go up. They go up to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Remember, if you've been with us in the last couple of weeks as we've begun this series in these psalms, that Psalm 120 found the psalmist in a foreign land, restless and homesick and even frustrated. But then Psalm 121 found this psalmist on the journey to Jerusalem. Now he's headed there for feast. The path there, though, is dangerous. It's hard. It's tricky. It takes several days. But God is the protector and the keeper and the one who will get him there safely. And now Psalm 122 is something like an arrival into Jerusalem. Or at least it's imagined that he's in Jerusalem based on his memory of what it's like to arrive. So just imagine with me a Jewish pilgrim's arrival into Jerusalem, whether it was the first time or the upteenth time. Maybe you've come from the countryside far away. In Jerusalem, you'd find is a city like no other. It's hopping, it's bustling. It says in verse 3, it's bound firmly together, intricately planned and compactly built up, both for efficiency and maximum use, but also for the aesthetic of it. Now, this would have been, imagine, many years after King David. The temple is already built. Even though David wrote this, as it was used by pilgrims, they would use this coming to temple. And seeing a city built up even more than in the days of David. They would have been singing along the way about its gates, about its walls and, and its towers. And then they arrive and they see it. They would have been singing about the house of the Lord. Book ending our psalm, verse 1 and verse 9. The house of the Lord, the temple. They've been singing about it and there it is in all its majesty and mass. They would have been singing about the house of David from verse 5 and the house of thrones of Davidic kings generation to generation. There is where they ruled. You would have been singing along the way about God's people. And now they cram themselves into this city by the thousands. All the tribes and different accents coming from different places, no doubt different clothes, and yet bound by this, 
together for this, giving thanks to the Lord as he decreed. What a sight this would be. This would have been far more impressive than a, a country boy seeing New York City for the first time. Let's imagine someone who hasn't seen it in, on TV and hasn't seen pictures of it. Imagine a country boy showing up in New York City and no doubt his chin would almost hit the floor. And yet that has no religious significance for that country boy, but this sure does. This is like that times who knows how much more. Because the trip is not about tourism. It's about the Lord. It's his house. It's his worship. It's his people. It's his presence. It's his king on the throne based on his promises and his commands and call. So I was glad when they said, let's go. So let's go. Marvel at it when you get there. Anticipate it with memory as you go. When you get there, look around and ponder what it all means and pray for the peace and security of Jerusalem. Verses 6 through 9 are a rather long exhortation for God's people to pray for Jerusalem's peace and security and to seek its good. Not because there's a problem, but because at this moment there isn't. But that doesn't mean it'll always be like that. So pray for it. Seek it. You see, this is particularly relevant, this call to prayer for peace. When we consider that in the Old Testament, there wasn't always peace and security for Jerusalem. It wasn't always happy, holy worship enjoyed by star-gazed pilgrims. Now, if we read on to the right of Psalm 120 into the prophets, we would find pockets of time when God's people would actually bring pagan idols into their worship. The priests of the temple would often lead the way in mingling the worship of the true God with the worship of cheap and cheesy idols. And so God would send prophets to them and he would rebuke them and he would warn them, he would plead with them. And for the most part, his people would not listen. So eventually God began to promise that he would severely chasten his people and he would do the unthinkable. He began to warn that eventually he will let destruction befall Jerusalem through the Assyrians. And he would remove his people from the land for a time by way of the Babylonians who took them into captivity. So before we get into the Rocky Mountains with all its majesty and glory, there's what appears to be a bit of a detour. Thirdly, Jerusalem through the eyes of exile. Exiles. Exiles were those who were torn from their homes and taken into Babylonian captivity. You get a taste of what that might have meant for Judeans back then in Psalm 137. Would you turn there? Psalm 137 gives us a picture of not just what it meant, but what it felt like to be in Babylon and away from their God and away from his worship. Verse 1, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. 
for they are our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They put away their harps. They buried their happy-go-lucky praise music because they're in Babylon, not Zion. In verse 7 of Psalm 137, there's the cry to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. This was their prayer. And the Lord did hear. The Lord did remember as they called on him to do. They didn't remain in Babylon forever. It was 70 or so years. And then God began to release them back to their land. It was under Ezra that there was a return of thousands. Now remember, we've been learning that Psalms of Ascent were, yes, used three times a year by those making pilgrimage to and from Jerusalem But no doubt these psalms were also used by those exiles who were freed from captivity under Cyrus and allowed to go back home. They would have sung these songs along that 500-mile-plus journey. Imagine them saying and singing to each other, I was glad when they said to me, let us go. Let us go back home. Let us go to the city of God. And yet there also had to be dissonance in singing these songs on that journey. Perhaps they were sung in a minor key. Because what awaited them in Jerusalem? Not towers and gates, a temple and palace, but ruins. Ruins. Jeremiah helps us appreciate the ruins of Jerusalem after its siege. Listen to Lamentations 2. The Lord has become like an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He's delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls and her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line, did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? And their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. On and on Jeremiah's lament goes. You get the picture that that city in all its beauty and all the represented promises there seemed buried. You can't help but think of that fateful trek into Jerusalem made by the exiles when we look at Psalm 122 because they wouldn't have sung it like this. 
It would have been a disconnect from what they felt and what they would soon see. And yes, Jerusalem and the temple and the walls would soon be rebuilt. That's in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Yes, soon these pilgrimages from those outlying communities would return again and they would begin their yearly trips to Jerusalem for feast. But after this, things would never quite be the same. They would never quite be the same. The the second temple had very little of its former majesty and beauty and, and size. Those who were old enough to remember the first temple wept when they saw the second temple because it looked woefully inadequate. At the completion of the first temple, God's glory entered it. Shekinah glory, it's called. His light, his smoke, his fire. Really, a symbol of his presence to let his people know that he's with them. He's in there. It is the house of the Lord, and he is in their midst. But when the second temple was built, it was finished. The sacrifices were made, and nothing happened. No glory entered that temple. Though the people were back in their land and with their temple and and though worship was restored, they were technically still under foreign rulers. Nehemiah 9 shows us this. Now this is Nehemiah 9. This is after the temple's rebuilt. This is after the walls are fixed. This is after God's worship has been restored. You still find things like this. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. There's discord there, isn't there? And basically things remain that way for the next four to five hundred years until... Until the king came. So let's step on the gas and let's get ourselves to that grand rocky mountain ridge we call Jesus. Fourthly, Jerusalem through the eyes of Jesus. Now our last two sermon series before this study of the Psalms of Ascent were Mark and 2 Samuel. That's convenient for us today because we can lean on them for understanding Psalm 122. We've already gone to 2 Samuel for help. Let's now turn to the gospel according to Mark in the New Testament. Turn there. We'll be there for a little bit. Turn to Mark chapter 1. And as you're turning there, let me say this, that if you're a new Christian, or if you're new to the Bible, or even if you're just new to Desert Springs Church, I should tell you that this is an unusual kind of sermon. We're not usually all over our Bibles talking about so many different categories and and periods of time as we are this morning. But one benefit it might have is to show us that this is one book. This is one grand story. That there is one author behind it all. Yes, many human authors, but God is a superintending single author. That's what we have with the Bible. We have a grand plan being unfolded, sometimes with foreshadows, and then sometimes fulfillment, sometimes promises, 
that look partially fulfilled and then get really fulfilled. Keep all that in mind as we come to Mark now and think about Jerusalem through the eyes of Jesus. In Mark 1, he begins his account with brief quotes from Isaiah and Malachi of the Old Testament. So Mark 1, verse 2, I send my messenger before you to prepare your way. That's a quote from Malachi 3.1. But what Malachi 3.1 says next that Mark doesn't record for us is still important. Mark intends for us to go back to Malachi and root around a little bit and see what else he has in mind when he quotes the little bit. And so we read on in Malachi 3.1, I send my messenger before you to prepare your way, and the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. Ah, temple. Psalm 122 is about the temple, the house of the Lord. And Mark begins by saying the Lord will come to his temple. And since Mark is writing about the Lord Jesus, we would anticipate that eventually Mark is going to show us Jesus coming to the temple. And there's only one time that Mark records that. No doubt Jesus came to the temple many times in his life. From the day he was circumcised, the eighth day past his birth. No doubt he kept the many feasts. Even the other gospel accounts show us that. But Mark only records one trip there for only one purpose. Starting in chapter 8, Jesus starts talking about being on the way. We're going on the way. And he's going to die. In chapter 10, he gets explicit that he's on the way to Jerusalem. So look at chapter 10, verse 33. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. Here's Jesus and the disciples going up to Jerusalem, actually for Passover. They're on the way there to celebrate Passover. And yet, remarkably, Jesus only speaks of going there to die. And yet, before that cruel death outside of Jerusalem, Jesus does enter Jerusalem, and he does enter the temple. That's in Mark 11. In Mark 11, there's his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then look at Mark 11, verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Remember Malachi 3.1, the Lord will come to his temple. Here's the climactic moment. What will happen next? And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out. Now, if you remember when we studied Mark, I said when we got to this point that this is either anticlimactic, bad storytelling, or this speaks volumes in a sneaky kind of way. And I think it's the latter. Jesus looking around is not out of curiosity, like he's a tourist. That's inspection. Him being late doesn't indicate that he was a rather poor planner that day, having ascended all the way up the temple mount. Now it's too late. Oh, great, we got to go all the way back down into town to get a place to stay. And then tomorrow I'm going to have to go all the way back up the temple mount. Jesus didn't plan poorly. Now, these are rich ways of saying 
that the Lord has come to his temple and there is a reckoning. He looks around in judgment. Time's up. It's now too late. It's too late for the religious leaders. It's too late for the temple itself. Now, if you think that's far-stretched, well, you just need to read on in the story in, in Mark. Because right after that, Jesus curses a fig tree as a symbol of the cursed religious leaders at the temple. Then Jesus cleanses the temple because these religious leaders had turned it into a den of robbers. And then Jesus teaches several times, chapter 11 and chapter 12. And his teaching has all to do with one thing, really. The bogus authority of the religious leaders at the temple is being judged and being replaced by himself. He's the true son. He's the judge. He's the king. And God himself has come to his temple. Jesus told those religious leaders, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Temple language. A new temple is being built with the rejected Christ as the cornerstone. And you say, well, what about the other temple, the one he was standing in? What about that? Well, Mark 13. Turn there. Mark 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. It's almost like he had Psalm 122 in mind. He marveled at the, the buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus had said long ago, back in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They thought he meant the physical temple. John tells us he was referring to his body, the temple. Destroy this and I will resurrect it on the third day, which he did, of course. But he was also hinting at the temple's destruction, which actually happened in the year A.D. 70. Jesus had before said, Something greater than the temple is here. And of course, he was referring to himself. He is the temple. He is the embodiment of the presence of God in this world. He tabernacled among us, John 1 tells us, and we beheld his glory. He's a greater and more perfect tent, Hebrews tells us. He's a new priesthood. He's a perfect sacrifice. He is the true king reigning and judging perfectly. David did it with equity and justice here and there. But Jesus will reign from his throne perfectly and forever without any wavering. Jesus inherits all the promises. Jesus is all of what Israel was to be, all of what the Old Testament was about. And in him, everything that Jerusalem was to be, well, we have infinitely more than that. In him, we have infinitely more than whatever Jerusalem was to be before Jesus came. He is the peace that Israel had been praying for for millennia. The peace. Hear this from Luke 19. 
Here, Jesus may have had Psalm 122 in mind when he talked about peace. It says, when he drew near and saw the city, that is Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from you. What makes for peace? He does. He does in a word. His, his word, his ways, his, his promises, the cross, his kingdom, that's what makes for true peace. Not bigger walls, not a greater army, not one more final blow to the Romans to get it all back. What makes for peace is Jesus. They've been praying for peace for millennia, and when the embodiment of peace and security showed up, they killed him. And ironically, that is the means by which you and I today can have true and lasting peace. More peace than Jerusalem in its heyday. More peace than the United States in its heyday. Jesus' death garners us eternal peace from the judgment of God. It's unchanging peace and security that's won by his blood upon the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Have you put your trust in this king, in this kingdom? Have you come in through these gates? Jesus is the place of God's presence, so go to him. Jesus is the only means by which you can get into God's presence safely. So go through him. Call out on him today. Call out to him to save you. And then if you've come to believe that, then know that where you go to worship God and to get to God is wherever you are. Like in a meeting like this, we're meeting with the living God. We have come together in that Psalm 122 sense. Now, God's worship isn't determined by a place, but a person. This was Jesus' point in John 4 where he had this conversation with the woman at the well and, and she asked Jesus, knowing that he was a teacher, do you think that we worship God on Mount Gerizim? We Samaritans do. Or do you believe you should worship God in Jerusalem like you Jews do? And Jesus answered, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The woman responded, well, when Messiah gets here, he'll straighten all this out. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. So God's worship isn't tied to a place, but a person. So what have you done with this person, Jesus? Have you come to him and through him to the Father? If so, now God's worship is anywhere and everywhere. In fact, all over this globe today, people in various languages are singing the praises of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is being proclaimed this morning, no doubt, there are people who are entering into this kingdom, walking through these gates to Jesus' presence in mercy. 
There are people today all over this world who are, for the first time, looking around and marveling at what God has said and what he's promised and what his people are and what we're to do. And they are glad that someone said to them, let us go to the house of the Lord. Well, fifthly, we need to consider Jerusalem through new eyes. We've already started to. That's the point of all of this, isn't it? To begin to see that well, our Bibles are illuminated by Jesus. It's as if Psalm 122 is this brilliant giant diamond and when you shine light through it, it refracts in a number of different directions. We see now with new eyes, don't we? So if Psalm 122 is saying something to you about current ge geopolitical matters, I don't think you're reading the Bible as God intended you to. Psalm 122 is going somewhere. It leads to other things. Should we pray for Jerusalem today? You may have wondered that already. Sure. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The Gaza Strip lacks peace. Pray for peace wherever peace is not found. Pray for the peace of Nice, France, Munich, Germany, and St. Louis, Missouri, or Baton Rouge. Pray for peace all over the place. There's much to pray for. Pray for the salvation of Jewish people. Pray also for the salvation of Palestinians. Pray and seek peace for Muslims. Pray for the salvation of Muslims. We don't want to live in the foothills of Psalm 122 and not see the glorious mountain ranges to which the path of the Bible has taken us since. This has been the plan all along, not just a single city or one nation, but all the nations coming in under the perfect son and king with a global kingdom should you go to Jerusalem today? Well, you sure can. Yeah, go to Israel and take in its history and its landscape. And, and surely parts of the Bible, stories and descriptions will become a little more alive once you've been on the ground there. But don't for a second think that a visit to Israel will get you any closer to God. It's still dirt. It's not holy dirt. It's just dirt. It's dirt with a lot of history. But we have a God who is everywhere and reigns on high. And he rules from his throne that is not right now in Jerusalem. It is at the right hand of the throne of God. You want to get closer to God? Go to Jesus. Go to him. Go to his word. Go to him in prayer. Go and meet with his people and sing his praises together. Don't marvel at the stones the way the disciples did in Mark 13. Look how big that stone is. They're shocked and they're awed when Jesus is next to them. He's the one to whom our marveling and awe should always go. So in Jesus, we have God's presence, so we go to him. In Jesus, we've been made fit for God's presence because of what he's done. 
And in Jesus, we can actually become the place of God's presence here on this earth. This is unthinkable. It seems blasphemous, except that the Bible teaches it to be so. That sinners like you and me can become his temple. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians 6 says. 2 Corinthians 6 tells us the exact same thing. It's amazing that God would dwell among us. So let us praise him for what he's done. Let us marvel at who he is and what he's going to do, leaning on his promises of old and the ones still to be fulfilled. Let us pray for the peace and security of his people and the prosperity of the gospel in this world with great confidence. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And let us keep our eyes on the horizon of what's still to come because Jesus is coming back. Jerusalem will one day be a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth. So listen to this in Revelation 21 as we close. John saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He said that the angel showed him the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had great high walls with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. How sure it is, how solid it is, how glorious and beautiful it is, how full and consuming it is. But there's no temple there. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Christian, that's what's to come. And even now we get a foretaste of it. It's unthinkable. Praise him for it. When someone says, let's go, let's go to him in worship, let's go to him in prayer, let us be glad to do so. What a great privilege it is. Well, there's still one more 14,000-foot ridge in our Psalm 122 portrait, and that's for next week. So let's come back. Let us be glad to go to this house to meet with him next Sunday. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, for the forgiveness of sins, and your great plan to give us the presence of God, the worship of God, and the mission of God. Who are we? Of course, we're not at all in the least worthy, only worthy of death and destruction because of our sin, but because of your mercy, we have every gift. We have you near us and with us. You with us to the end of the age. Lord, keep us. Help us to keep confessing our hope in you to each other and to this world. Help us to keep marveling at what you've done and who you are and what you've revealed to us. And let us keep watching each other.
to encourage each other, to pray for one another, to hold each other up. We give thanks to you for all this. We commit it all to you because of Christ, who is our cornerstone. Thank you for the surety of him as our temple, him as our rock. Amen.